Hey everybody, this is Chess Griffin. Welcome back to Linux Reality. This is episode 56 and it's Home Servers Part 2. And this week we're going to talk about the Apache Web Server. Seems like a good place to start. Pretty common piece of software. And uh, I think what we'll do maybe next week is talk about uh, configuring MySQL and PHP. Sort of the, you know, with the LAMP server, you've got Linux and Apache and MySQL and PHP. Those are sort of like the standard four. Uh, and so um, I thought we'd talk about Apache this week and MySQL PHP next week and maybe even go through a uh, you know walkthrough of an installation of an application either next week or maybe the following week and then we'll talk about some other servers so I think it'll be you know a good little series of, of topics here we've got lots of different kinds of things out there so and several people have sent me requests for specific kinds of servers and things so I'll see what I can do I can't promise I'll be able to cover every possible type of server out there there's you know I haven't done everything myself so uh, I mean I'm really just trying to talk about things that I that I can talk about but uh, anyway so this week we're going to talk about Apache before we do though uh got a couple things here first of all I wanted to mention that a few months ago I was approached by a company called VTC they're called uh, I think it's video training company and they are a company that uh they they make uh you know video courses on a variety of, of uh, technological uh, issues and, and uh, software and things like that. I mean, they've got tutorials on various Windows stuff and, and Macintosh and, you know, Photoshop, and they've got a, a Linux section. And they wanted to do one on Ubuntu Linux. So I did one on Ubuntu. So it's now available. It's been out, you know, a few weeks now. And uh, what they had, what they've done is pretty cool. They've, they've uh, given me some codes to give to folks. The way their, their service works is you can either purchase, you know, individual titles for a set fee, or you can subscribe uh, monthly or quarterly or annually or whatever. And so they've given me some codes for like one free week, you know, and uh, they've given me a bunch of codes that I can hand out to, to, to folks. So uh, I'll post something in the forums about this as well. But if you're interested in, in getting a, a code for a free week, uh, you can check out their titles and see what kinds of things they have. Just send me an email, linuxreality at gmail.com, and, and I'll get one to you. And obviously when I run out, I run out. So I can't, you know, I can't promise I'll have enough for everybody, but, um, just send me an email if you're, if you're interested and I'll get back to you just as soon as I can. Uh, so that, that's very cool. I'm very excited about that. I also wanted to mention that, uh, I heard, well, uh, not me, but the, the whole world, uh, <laughs> heard back from the lug radio guys. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, uh, a listener had emailed me and posted in the forums about the idea of, of bringing some flyers to lug radio live, their sort of annual event. And unfortunately, I will not be able to attend that event, but he wanted to bring some flyers. I thought it was a very cool idea, but I thought we might want to check with the Lug Radio guys. And so they had, they, they, you know, they got our contact about that. And, and so in the most recent Lug Radio episode at the very end, you know, when they kind of go through their listener emails, uh, after making fun of my name, <laughs> which was, which was funny. I mean, it's all in good fun. I really love listening to those guys. They crack me up. Um, they said it was no problem. So that's very cool. So if you're interested in creating some flyers, we've got a thread in the forums about it. I've also posted a link to the SVG files and the other things that I've saved from when we uh, redid the logo several months ago with, you know, great, great community participation there. And uh, I would love to see what people can come up with flyers because if for no other reason, I mean, I'm also going to be going to the Ohio Linux Fest later this year in September, and I would love to have some flyers to bring with me and I'm not creative at all. So, you know, I definitely want to throw it out there and see what people can, can uh, come up with. I think it's a great idea. And so I'm very excited about that. I think with that, we're going to get right to the main section, the Apache web server. Okay, well, the Apache web server, it's a very well-known piece of software. Uh, it is a piece of software that 
is a web server, meaning it, uh, it serves up HTML files, uh, either locally, you know, just within your local LAN, like an intranet kind of a thing, or to the outside world as just a, you know, serving up a web page. And it can be a, a static HTML page, just very basic, or it can be, you know, some kind of content created through PHP and, you know, something, something, you know, not, not as static. And, and uh, uh, there's all different kinds of things that can be uh, served up uh, with a web server. And Apache is by no means uh, the only web server out there. Uh, Microsoft's product is called IIS. I think Apache probably has 60 to 70% of the market, I would imagine. But uh, uh, IIS is also very prominent. And then there's another one that runs on Linux called Lighty. And uh, it's actually um, L-I-G-H-T-T-P-D. It's like light plus HTTPD is Lighty. It's, that's how you pronounce it, Lighty. And uh, it's a very light, fast web server. And actually, I was looking at their website, and I didn't realize this, but Lighty actually powers YouTube, Wikipedia, and, and a bunch of other big sites. So uh, Lighty is certainly uh, no slouch by any means. It's a very, I've never actually used Lighty, but it consistently gets high marks and high praise in the community every time I read something about it. So that's another web server. So Apache is certainly not the only one, but it's the one that I've used the most. And it's certainly a very common uh, application. It is the A in LAMP, after all. So I thought, you know, it would be a good place to start. And so uh, basically what you want to do is, is uh, obviously everybody's needs are different. So I'm going to kind of talk about some, some generalities here in terms of the configuration files and the different directories to look for and that kind of thing. But most distributions nowadays ship with Apache 2. Uh, Apache 1.3 is sort of the older branch, and there's a few distributions that still ship with 1.3, and you occasionally come across 1.3 in web host providers. In fact, actually, a lot of web host providers still use 1.3, including a web host provider that I use. Uh, but most distributions these days for home users ship with Apache too. So when you go to install Apache, you might be installing a package called Apache, or it might be called Apache 2. Uh, but either way, I would start with Apache 2. Like I said, it's it's the it's the more current version of Apache. And once you've downloaded and installed Apache, it's not really actually that big of a piece of software. It's four or five megabytes, something like that. And most of the time, at least in most distributions I've come across with, it's set up pretty well by default. But we'll be going through some of the uh, configuration files and things like that here in just one second. Now, uh, the Apache web server's uh, main configuration directories, or well, the main configuration directory is usually uh, slash Etsy slash Apache 2. Sometimes I've seen it uh, where the configuration directory is slash Etsy slash HTTPD, and sometimes it's slash Etsy slash Apache without the two on the end. But I think most of the time it's slash Etsy slash Apache 2. That is the configuration directory. That's where all the configuration files are held. That's not the directory where the actual website files are held. That's usually a different directory. Usually that directory is slash var slash www. That is seems to be pretty consistent across the board. Uh, and then, of course, you have subdirectories within that if you want to have different websites available. The nice thing about Apache and most web servers is that you can use one instance of Apache to serve web pages for multiple websites. The way Apache does it is through the use of something called virtual hosts. Basically, what Apache does is it looks at, I think this is the way it works, is it looks at the incoming packets, let's say, or the incoming request and sees, oh, this is a request for example.com. So it'll look to 
directory A for example.com. And then it gets a request for uh, mysite.com. And so it'll say, okay, well, that's in directory B. You know, it'll have different directories for different, uh, different websites, different, different URLs. Uh, so you can have multiple domains and multiple websites with uh, one instance of Apache using virtual hosts. And I'll talk about virtual hosts in just a second. But turning back to the configuration directory, the main configuration file that you'll want to kind of become familiar with is uh, usually called Apache2.conf. And again, that is usually in slash Etsy slash Apache 2. So slash Etsy slash Apache 2 slash Apache 2.conf is the main configuration file. Again, sometimes that configuration file is within another subdirectory called conf or, or config, but you just may sometimes have to hunt around for it. But let's, for purposes of this episode, let's say that the uh, configuration file is slash Etsy slash Apache 2 slash Apache 2.conf. What I would recommend is definitely pulling up this file in a text editor and just taking a look at it, looking through it. I've got mine up actually as I'm recording this uh, because I want to look at it while I talk about it because it's a very important file. Obviously, it's the main configuration file for Apache. The other thing about it is, is it's extremely well commented. And I know it's, you know, especially for folks who are not used to editing stuff on the command line, it's sort of unusual to have to read through a configuration file and read the comments, but I highly recommend it in this case. It really is helpful because each of the commented lines, again, of course, those are the lines that have the little, you know, number sign or the little hash mark in the front. Uh, those are just comments and those usually explain what's coming up on the next line, you know, the next real line. So for example, in the very beginning here, you'll see some comments, you'll see some introductory comments. And then once it gets into the sort of the heart of it, uh, the first section, at least in mine, is it is an explanation of the line server root. And that's the first uncommented line in my file. And it basically says here, server root, the top of the directory tree under which the server's configuration slash error slash and log files are kept. So in this particular case, it's telling me the directory, which is again, that slash etsy slash apache2, that's the main server root directory for Apache. That's where all the configuration files are held, in other words. Uh, continuing on down, the next um, uh, section or the next line is listen, and the comment above it says, listen, allows you to bind Apache to specific IP addresses and or ports instead of the default. Uh, so right now it says, uh, mine says listen 80. Uh, and of course, 80 is the port number that most web servers, if not all web servers, I guess, run on. So most web servers run on port 80. You can change that to a different port. Some ISPs may block port 80 because they don't want people running web servers on their home network, you know. Uh, so maybe you have to change that to 8080. But whatever ports you use, if you're going to be serving this uh, up to the outside world, then of course, obviously, you've got to do the whole port forwarding and going through your NAT router and firewall rules and all that stuff. I won't get into that detail, but, but this is where you can configure which port Apache is going to listen on, 80 being the default. You can also put an IP address just before it with a colon separating the IP address and the port. So for example, you could say listen 127.0.0.1 colon 80. And of course, the 127.0.0.1 is your localhost IP. In other words, that's the IP of just the machine itself. That's if you wanted to run Apache just locally on one single machine that nobody else on the outside can access, not even machines on your on your LAN. It's only going to 
serve up your, the web pages on port 80 on your local host. And that's helpful. You know, a lot of times developers or maybe web designers, you want to have, let's say you're designing a website and you want to be able to see what it looks like, you know, when it's actually going to be out there on the internet. You can run an instance of Apache locally and serve up the web pages just locally for testing purposes. Or maybe you want to run a, a wiki on your local machine, for example. You could also change this to your LAN's IP if you wanted to serve up these pages just locally within your LAN. Let's say your workstation is 192.168.1.50. Well, you can put that IP address here. And so you'd have listen, you know, 192.168.1.50 colon 80. And that means it's going to serve up on this page on your, on your LAN. If you wanted to serve up just web pages within your local LAN, then other machines on your LAN would just access, you know, they'd open up a browser and they'd type 192.168.1.50 and it would go over, you know, and access the website that's running on your other machine. So it's really pretty cool. I mean, you can do a lot with this here. Uh, again, 80 being sort of the common, sort of the, you know, the standard default port. Okay, going back to the configuration file, you'll see a bunch of section, you'll see a big section here with, with a bunch of lines that say load module. There's lots of different things that you can have Apache do or not do, and you can either load these modules or, or not load them by, by commenting out any particular lines. Uh, for the most part, at least to start with, you know, you can probably leave this as default. There's obviously a lot of security stuff, and there's a great web, there's a great web page. Uh, they're a great document, I should say, on the Apache website that talks about securing your Apache web server. And I'm not going to really get into the security stuff here, but, uh, but, but about these modules, most of the time these default modules are fine. The one ch change you may need to make is if you need to run PHP 5, uh, then occasionally, you know, some Apache web servers that I've come across will have the PHP 5 module loaded, me meaning uncommented, and sometimes it's commented. Okay, but continuing on down, then you'll get to a section that says main server configuration. And this is where you can start configuring sort of the default rules, if you will, or the default options that are, that are going to apply across the board. The way Apache works, like a lot of, you know, a lot of times you run across this with dealing with software, at least in Linux, is that you, the way software is set up is you set default options and then you can change those options on a, on a, maybe a per host you know, instance. So let's say you're running Apache and you have two different websites. Uh, you've got example.com and you've got mysite.com. Well, let's say you want to set up a, you know, you want to have the default option being uh, that, that uh, the contents of directories, empty directories are not displayed by default. So in the apache.com file, you would change the, the appropriate option to make sure that's the case. That's so the default rule is that is that, you know, the, the contents of directories are not displayed by default. And then when you get to configuring your virtual hosts for those two websites, you can change it for just the one that you want. So say you don't want directories to be served for example.com, but you do want them served up. You want the contents of directories displayed for the mysite.com. Well, it, when we get to the section on virtual hosts, you can see you can change some of these options on a per host basis. Hopefully that makes sense. But continuing on down, you can see where you can set your server admin email. That's the email that's going to show up for the, you know, the, the webmaster when you have a, an error page. Then there's a document root line. And, it, and that again is the default location for HTML files that you're going to serve up. Again, that's just the default. When you go to configure your virtual hosts, you can change that and you frequently do to different 
document roots for that particular website. And that's just, that's just the default section. Then you'll start to see blocks with like opening tags and closing tags, kind of like XML tags. For example, I see one here I'm looking at and it says, you know, open bracket directory space and then a forward slash and then a close bracket. And then it's got four or five lines and then it's got a closing tag, which is the word directory with a slash in front of it, you know, with brackets on, on either end. With the forward slash in the beginning where it says directory forward slash, what that is, is it's saying this is the default for the root, for the, for the document root, meaning these are the default options for the main directory that you're going to serve HTML files. And you'll see different options there, you know, about, you know, order, deny, comma, allow, deny from all. So it's kind of a restrictive set of options to begin with. And then you start enabling options, which is sort of a common way of, of running software. You often hear nowadays that the, that the, you know, for firewalls, for example, is the default rules, you block everything, and then you only allow whatever you need to allow. Same idea here. You sort of have a very restrictive set of options that you then loosen as needed on a host by host basis. Uh, and then you'll see, uh, sometimes you'll see a section on, uh, what, uh, for, for user home directories. And what this is getting at is in what Apache has, this is kind of cool. You may have come across this in, in kind of traveling around and looking at open source projects where, you know, maybe you'll have a, an open source project and that's their main website, you know, project.org, let's say. And sometimes you'll have maybe the developers for that project will have their own pages, you know, individual pages on that same website. So you may have, you know, project.org slash, and then a tilde, and then a username, Joe, you know, and you can see that the developer Joe has got his own little page within that project's website. The way that works is you can set up Apache to where each individual user on the machine can create a directory, and it's often called public underscore HTML, and whatever they put into that directory will be served up when someone types in the URL bar of a browser, you know, your domain forward slash tilde and then the username. So it's a way for to allow each user on the machine to to sort of be able to take advantage of the running Apache by having their own individual pages. And you'll see that in this in this uh typically in this home in this uh, configuration file for Apache, you'll see a section there on users public underscore HTML directories, and that's what that's getting at. Uh, then there's uh, usually towards the end you'll start seeing some include lines or something where you can you can enable uh, again, sometimes sometimes the includes are where you can see the user's home directory. You know, in other words, if you uncomment a separate uh, document, a, a separate file, that's where the actual user directory information is held. And there's also usually a line there for including virtual hosts. And again, just look at the comments and you'll see the line that you need to enable to allow uh, virtual hosts. Like I have one here in, in this instance of Apache, there's a line towards the bottom that says virtual hosts. And the next line is include slash Etsy slash Apache 2 slash H, you know, HTTP D dash virtual host.com. So they have a separate little configuration file for just the virtual hosts. Sometimes in Apache, that virtual host configuration is actually in this Apache configuration file. But either way, uh, the virtual host, the way that works is like this. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty nifty. 
In your Apache configuration directory, again, slash Etsy slash Apache 2, you'll often see there'll be a subdirectory there, maybe two subdirectories. And the first one is sites-enabled. Well, the first one is sites-available, and the second one is sites-enabled. And in the sites-available directory is a file called default. That's usually the case. And what that file is, it's sort of a template for a virtual host. And so the idea is that what you do is you go into that sites-available directory. And this directory is supposed to have separate files, one for each host that you're going to use on your Apache web server. So going back to my example, you would have one file in here called uh, example.com, and you'd have another, another one called mysite.com. And that's where you can make the different changes, the different options for those two different hosts. Maybe for example.com, I want to enable uh, something and I don't want to enable it in the mysite.com. So I would make the change in one and not in the other, you know. So the idea is that you can have different options, different configurations for your different hosts. And once you've done that for your hosts in the sites-available directory, then what it, what Apache will do, there's a, um, there's a command and it's called A2N site. That's all one word. A2ENSITE. And I believe what that stands for is Apache 2 enable site. So you would type, for example, let's say I had a template in sites available called example.com. Then I would, what I would do as root is I would type A2N site space example.com. And then I would want to restart the Apache web server. And what that will do, what the A2N site command does is it basically creates a link or, you know, a, a symbolic link of between the sites available directory and the sites-enabled directory. Or to put it another way, whatever is in the sites-enabled directory are sites that are enabled. And you enable a site by using that a 2 site command. And then you would just, like I said, restart Apache. And the way to start Apache or restart, of course, is slash Etsy slash init period D slash Apache 2 and then start, stop, or restart. That's the case in most distributions. Uh, so it's very easy to create virtual hosts for multiple different websites, different domains using um, the template that's in the sites-available uh, directory. Make, you know, copy that default template into however many you need, give them different names, and you just look in those, uh, you just look at that template and you'll see what you need to change for each, uh, for each domain. And basically you would put the domain name towards the top. Sometimes there's an alias line, but you'll put the name of the domain in directory uh, or, the, or the, the location of the files in the directory tag, and then you'll have your options for that particular uh, web host, and then you'll close it with a directory tag. And it's very simple. It's very straightforward, and there's tons of documentation, and I'll put some links to some good Apache 2 documentation in the show notes, of course, uh, but it's really handy, and it's very cool. I've used virtual hosts uh, many times over the years, and I still do now with my Apache web servers. Uh, you know, the Linux Reality website is on Apache, and it's using the virtual host, and it works just fine. It works really well, and you can have separate subdirectories for your files and separate, you know, configuration options for your different domains, and it's it's pretty cool. And, uh, and you know, the Apache web server, you know, it, it is a very powerful and complex uh, piece of software, 
I feel like I only know 5% of what it can do. I mean, the documentation at the Apache website is excellent. It's a, it's pretty, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to read. And uh, I know it can get a little overwhelming. The good news is, is that lately, I think at least, um, the default Apache 2 configuration is generally set up pretty secure by default because most of the correct options are, you know, either enabled or disabled, depending on whatever it is. And it's usually set up to handle virtual hosts by default. Uh, so generally speaking, I mean, you can get up in five or 10 minutes, you know, you look, you install Apache, uh, you, you know, take a look through the configuration file, the main configuration file to see if there's any options you need to change. You go into your sites dash and, uh, available directory, copy the default template, change the options for your, for, say your first virtual host, Use that A2 nsite command with the name of your virtual host file, and that will create that little link into sites-enabled, and then restart Apache. And then, of course, check your, you know, if you're going to forward ports and whatnot, you know, if you're serving up pages uh, to the Internet or whether you're just going to do it locally, and it will work. I just, you know, right now, before I started this episode, I decided to do a local install of Apache on one of my machines, and it worked just perfectly. And I did it. I did a quick little install. I changed the, um, I changed that IP address in the main configuration file where the, you know, where the port line is to my local host, my 127.0.0.1. I restarted Apache, and I went to, I opened up a browser and just typed in localhost, and it gave me the default, you know, Apache you know, web page that kind of comes with Apache by default. So it's pretty cool. It's fun stuff. And uh, what we'll do is, you know, like I said, next week we'll talk about some uh, MySQL and some PHP and then kind of tie this all together so you can see how to do a LAMP server in general and, uh, and you can have fun with it. So it's very cool stuff. All right. I think that's going to do it for this main section. Let's see. I don't have any uh, listener tips for this week, but I do have uh, some feedback, including an audio feedback, which we'll get to next. Yes, this is Ben. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for about a month, and I'm up to episode 42. I think it's very useful. You've got a lot of great tips in there. Um, I rather enjoyed the um, the session you had, the podcast you had about SSH. Um, learned a lot of good information there as far as using keys and stuff. Um, I'll be using that more at work. I'm also forced to use Windows at work, but I try and use Linux whenever I can. Um, I wanted to tell people about a couple of things. There's a project called uh, Code Linux, and it's made to run on top of Windows, and you can use all your networking and everything on it. I think it has a little less overhead, like VMware, and you can run like different Debian distros and uh, versions of Slackware on there. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask was if uh, you ever plan on doing a episode on Gentoo Linux. Um, I realize that uh, this is geared more towards the new people, uh, but I do think it's a, a good uh, way to go for some people. Uh, the main reason being is that uh, you can, you know, with Gentoo Linux, you design everything yourself. It's basically from scratch. And so, you know, some people might like that way of doing things. You know, like the person that likes to 
uh, build a car from scratch, you know, buy their own engine and, and put all the parts together. That's kind of the way it is with Gentoo. Um, if people want to read about it, you can go to Gentoo.org, and there's a Gentoo handbook, and it has a very good walkthrough on how to set up your entire system. Um, the thing I like about Gentoo is it gives you a lot of freedom of choice, so you can pick what you want to install, um, go with different kernels and such. Um, it's great. Bye. Okay, well, thank you, Ben. Uh, good comment there. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I may do an episode on Gen 2. I'm not sure just yet. It, like you said, it's, it is definitely, um, you know, a more advanced distribution because it is very command line driven. And you, like you said, you also have to really build it up from scratch. It's a true source based distribution, uh, where you compile most things by source. It's funny. I installed Gen 2 back in the early days of Gen 2, uh, when they didn't have, you know, I think nowadays they've got ISOs that have more stuff compiled by default so you can kind of get started quicker and that sort of thing and when i when i tried gen 2 it, they didn't have that they just had stage one installs and you pretty much built the whole thing up from the ground and it it, it took days to get going uh but it was cool and i you certainly learn a lot from using gen 2 that's without question and the documentation is fantastic uh, i mean it's really not that hard to to get started with gen 2 even with a stage one install you just print out the handbook or the whatever the documentation and you just follow it along and it works great and uh it's a lot like the bsds and that you know most things are compiled from source uh, I've been playing with the BSDs lately and, and really enjoying them. But but like Gen 2, they can take a long time to compile. They do provide, obviously, packages and things to, you know, binary packages to get you started pretty quickly. But you, you pretty soon, you know, uh, once you start using it, you end up compiling a lot of stuff from source. And uh, that works for some people and doesn't work for others. So, But I encourage folks that want to learn about about it to check it out. I mean, Gen 2 is a great project. So thank you very much, Ben. Uh, I got an email here from James and James says, hi, Chess. I came across your podcast recently while Googling for Fluxbox, my favorite window manager. I like to check once in a while to see if there's any new stuff out on the net about it. And I really like it so much so that I'm going through all the episodes from first to last. I've been using Linux for about four years, give or take, but even though I'm not a newbie, I enjoy listening to your comments and opinions and I've learned or relearned several things from them. I just listened to the shell commands episode where you mentioned your background process is terminating when you close the window. I haven't listened that much past there yet, so someone probably already mentioned this, but just in case not, I thought I would email you before I forgot. If you follow your ampersand with the disown command, the background process will be taken out of the list of processes to be terminated when the originating process ends, so it will continue running after you close terminal. Keep up the good work. You're in my regular rotation now with the Tech Guy Security Now and Twit. Thank you, James. Excellent tip. I did have several people respond to that, uh, that point and with a couple other options, I think SigHub and some other things, but I always still use a control D and that seems to work well, but, uh, I didn't know about disown. So thanks for that. Here's an email from David. David says, not sure how I stumbled across your podcast, but I am glad I did. I listened to my podcast on my commute to and from work and has quickly become my favorite podcast. I would rate myself somewhere between a Linux newbie and an experienced user. I still mostly use Windows, but I do have a Linux server running at home with Apache SSH and just recently a subversion server. Uh, when I was going through your list of shows, I was thrilled to see one on screen. I tried figuring this out once before and didn't get very far, but with your podcast, I think sh I should be able to jump right in and start using it. I just finished the SSH podcast and learned some, some from it as well. Sometimes it is the little tidbits you mentioned, like switch proxy for Firefox. I just installed that so I can easily switch my laptop between work and home. You also mentioned some kind of system log viewer manager, but I forgot the name. 
I think that was Logwatch. Uh, I will have to re-listen to get that great piece of software. Uh, and then he has a suggestion about doing um, some proxying or HTTP redirection. Uh, yeah, that's something I might uh, get to at some point, David. Um, I know you can kind of do that with SSH using the dash D switch. And uh, there are some other options out there. So I, you know, let me, uh, I'll put that on the list of things that I'm going to try to get to here. So thank you very much, David. Here's an email from Skoker, I think. And he says, so I sit here after 30 episodes in two weeks and I still don't have my hard drive partitioned. Our professor is trying to get the okay to, to distribute a virtual machine so that we can run Solaris 10 and train on a different OS. I've tried the Sumi live version and it seemed okay. I know with your podcast, I'll be on the right track. I'm confident that I'll be able to use what you have taught to jump right into a new OS. Thank you for broadening my horizon and giving me the heads up on Linux. Very cool, Skoker. Thanks very much. Here's my last email for this week, and this is from Shane. Shane says, I've been using Linux for three or four years, and I'm extremely enthusiastic about it. Over the years, I've learned a surprising large amount about it. When I stumbled across your show a couple days ago, I thought the way you explained some of the complexities of Linux are extremely easy to understand, and I was quickly drawn into listening to this show. I am also working my way back through your previous shows. I just thought I would drop some good feedback as to what I've heard so far. During my time of using Linux, I can say I've had a fair amount of problems and have tried almost every distro and have never quite settled with one in particular. I've been extremely interested in contributing to open source projects, and with me being better at coding side of the projects, I have therefore been learning various different programming languages. I've been pestering my friends and family to use Linux for a long time, and I've actually been quite successful in getting quite a few people to convert. Once I tried to get my school to convert, but let's just say that didn't go down well with the sysadmins. Uh, I love Linux from the uh, devolving standpoint. However, I still think that it has room for improvement in order to fully reach the average user, like editing files such as xorg.com which is why your show is great for guidance. Anyway, sorry for the long email, but with such a great show, I couldn't help myself. I love the show. Keep up the good work, and I hope to see you at Lug Radio Live. Uh, P.S. I would also love it if you could do an episode on setting up spam filters such uh, with an email client such as Mutt. Also, in response to a previous email about opening terminals in Nautilus, there's a plugin called Nautilus Open Terminal that will add the open in terminal option as in Conqueror. However, in order for the plugin to work, I found I had to restart my session. Thanks again from Shane. Well, Shane, great email here. Let's see, lots of good stuff. Um, let me go backwards here. Starting with the Nautilus Open Terminal thing. Yeah, I think we did. Uh, I had come across that after that episode, and I think I posted it in the forums about that. But thanks for the reminder. Uh, that is a nice little script, and it works very well. As far as doing an episode on spam filters with something like Mutt, that's that's a possibility. Um, most of the spam filtering I've done has been when I've run my email server, you know, using Spam Assassin, which is really more of a server-side solution. I guess you could probably run it on on sort of the client end, but um, I haven't. I've never done that. I've always run it on the server. Uh, and then, of course, you know, some uh, emails clients like Thunderbird have their own kind of built-in spam or junk mail filters or something like that. So, but I have thought about doing an episode on Mutt, and so I don't know. I have to kind of think about that. But that's a good idea. And uh, let's see. L yeah, Lug Radio Live. I won't be there, unfortunately. I'd love to. I'd love to get there, but it's just you know kind of hard for me to do. And um, but thanks for all your other comments, and I'm glad to to hear that you've been able to uh, convert some folks to Linux and that you're enjoying it. It's, it's funny. Speaking of the conversion, I've mentioned in the past that you know my wife doesn't use Linux. She actually uses our Mac, and I tried to get her to use Linux several years ago, back in the you know KDE uh, two point something days, and she just you know she just didn't take to it. And uh, I haven't really pushed too hard since then. But what's interesting is, is that our Mac, and this is an old Mac. I mean, this is, I don't know, four or five years old, if not more. So 
it's showing its age. It's pretty slow now. I mean, it's just a one gigahertz and, you know, it's, it's definitely getting up there. So, and she's just becoming more and more frustrated with the Mac just in general on a variety of things, which is, that's nice to hear. So, you know, I, I've got a few laptops here around the house and I decided to put a release candidate feisty fawn on there. And obviously this is release candidate. So it's still beta and all that, but I've been checking out feisty. And so I let her play with laptop, you know, and I got her set up on terminal services because she needs that to log into work. And, you know, there's a nice little, uh, uh, gnome front end for that and, uh, set up you know, our printers, I have a print server. So I made sure that it was connected. You know, the laptop was connected through cups to the print server so she could print because she does print quite a bit and, uh, just gave her a laptop. And I said, look, there's the uh, icon for Firefox and, uh, you know, just see what you think. And so she got on it and she's been using it for a week or so and is just loving it and, uh, has had no issues, been printing, been able to log into work. And that's, uh, that's what it's all about. Sometimes, you know, Pete, some people, it may take a while, and uh, even I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this maybe have tried Linux from time to time over the years, and maybe it's taken them a while for it for it to click, and maybe it, it still hasn't clicked, and that's fine. I mean, everybody kind of does this on their own time, and, you know, I, I just ask, like with my wife, I, I just want her to kind of check it out from time to time, and I'm not going to force it on her or, or on anybody. Uh, so I think, you know, the way things have been evolving with Linux, it's coming sooner rather than later, I think, where it's really going to be available and accessible to most people. I really do think that it's been, I mean, the strides, I think, I think back to when I first started using Linux, which is really not that long ago compared to some people, uh, maybe six years now, I guess. And, uh, I mean, it was pretty rough around the edges and in some ways, I guess it still is, but in a lot of ways it has come a it has come a long way. Uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, I remember trying to get Linux running on an old laptop back in 2001, and it just was a struggle. And now, I mean, I put Feisty on this little Dell laptop, and everything works. I mean, I didn't have to do anything. It was amazing. Pretty cool stuff. So anyway, that's a tangent. <laughs> Thanks again, Shane, uh, for that email. And I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks again for listening, everybody, and thanks for staying subscribed and, and all that good stuff, sending me the uh, fantastic emails. Please keep the emails coming, and please keep those audio comments coming. You can call the listener hotline, or you can, of course, send me an MP3 that you just record on your own. You can also use the audio web-based recording service, and you can uh, find some of that information on the Linux Reality homepage at linuxreality.com. I also ask that you check out the forums. We've had a lot of people signing up lately, and uh, we're pushing. We're starting to push 900, which is very cool. We've got a lot of cool things going on in there, a lot of great participation. It's just a really nice, friendly place to hang out. So, you know, if you're having troubles with Linux or you don't know where to ask, just come over to the forums and ask. I mean, we've got nice people who will be happy to help. So, uh, And do introduce yourself as well. I try to make a point to respond to all the uh, introduction posts to, uh, that people post, which is very neat. Uh, thanks again, everybody. And, um, oh, one other thing here before I forget. Uh, I'm going to do a second uh, volume of the archive CD. I've got the volume one, which is episodes one through 26. And I'm going to do a second one with episodes 27 through 50-something, however many I can fit on a, on a CD. So I will put that up pretty soon, and I'll be sure to mention it when I do get that. It might be in the next couple of weeks, but uh, I do want to get that up because I've had several people ask me for that. So... 
think that's going to do it. Hope everybody has a great week and a great weekend, everyone. And uh, take care. I'll catch you all next time. Uh, this has been episode 56 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.